0: TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Forgotten history of the U.S. war on Korea, told by veteran, journalists, and historians, with an update from Democracy Now! On Wednesday, April 26, 2023, Joe Biden pledged to deploy nuclear-armed submarines to South Korea for the first time in 40 years. The U.S. would involve officials from South Korea in nuclear planning operations targeting North Korea. This announcement reminded many of us of a threat that Donald Trump made six years earlier when he said, North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen before. End quote. Then and now, we asked, how has it come to this? What is the experience of people on the ground in North and South Korea? And why do we know so little about the U.S. war on Korea that began 70 years ago and never ended in a peace agreement? I had the moving experience to record one of the few living veterans of that war. The late great folk singer and storyteller Utah Phillips said that being drafted and stationed in Korea changed his life. He saw a country that had been utterly devastated, worse than any before or after. He told us how he became an activist at a meeting in the Unitarian Fellowship Hall in Berkeley in May of 2004.
1: Korea was a sea of ruins, Korea was shoeshine boys coming to our fence. And then when they were shooed away, going out and digging a little hole in the dike and the rice paddies drained because it was winter and build a little fire to stay warm. And I'd go into the guard towers to spot the fire, so I could take a canteen cup full of cocoa and, and uh, tea out and going out one morning and find one of them frozen, little boy frozen to death, carrying him back in giving him to the Katoosas, the Koreans attached to the U.S. Army. And they took him, but I could see the way they looked at me, how much they hated me, how much they didn't want me to be there. Trying to swim in the Imjin River to wash it all off, to wash off all of the decay, the rot, to wash off this unlimited license for excess of all kinds, sexual uh, excess, violence, booze, drugs, what have you, the blueprint for self-destruction, the blueprint for manhood, that had been given to me, not just by my army sergeants, not just by Korea, but, but by, by my gym instructor, by my camp counselors, by my own father, you see. I wanted to abandon it, I wanted to swim in the Imjin, but I couldn't do it. Regulation. Why? Yun Khan, a young Korean who spoke English, said, when we get married in our culture, the young people move in with the grandparents. Um, but there's devastation, there's nothing growing. So when the first baby comes, somebody has to leave, and it's the old man. The grandfather will go sit on a blanket with a jar of water on the bank of the Imjin River, and die, and then roll down and be carried out to sea. He said, you can't swim in the Imjin because those are our elders being carried out to sea. Well, that was when it was done for me, that was when it was over for me, and I gave it, I started running away. And that's when I said, This is all wrong everything is all wrong it all has to change and that change has to begin with me
0: utah phillips and the change led him to work with transients and migrants and to the discovery of anarchism and pacifism for the last 21 years of his life he lived in nevada city There he helped found the Hospitality House Homeless Shelter and the Peace and Justice Center. Moving forward to August 2017, Jeff Blankford is a veteran, much-traveled journalist and photographer. He has hosted Takes on the World, a twice-monthly program on international affairs on KZYX Public Radio in Northern California. Jeff studied history at UCLA in the 1950s and was one of 14 students out of 14,000 who protested the Korean War. He recently did in-depth research on the origin of the war and invited Christine Ahn to be the guest on his program on August 23, 2017. Christine Ahn is a co-founder of the Korea Policy Institute, the national campaign to end the Korean War, and a columnist with the Institute for Policy Studies. Here first is Jeff Blankford with part of his review of the history of the Korean War Korea is called
2: the Forgotten War, notes John DeLore, a professor in the International Relations Department at Yonsei University in Seoul. And part of what has been forgotten is the utter ruin and devastation that we rained down on the North Korean people. This has been ingrained into the North Korean psyche, he adds, which is not surprising. How bad was it? Do you remember General Curtis LeMay, who became infamous for promising to bomb Vietnam back into the Stone Age? Well, he also played a role in North Korea's destruction. We went over there, LeMay said, and fought the war and eventually burned down every town in North Korea, anyway, somewhere or another. Over a period of three years or so, we killed off, what, 20% of the population. We burned down just about every city in North and South Korea, both, LeMay wrote. We killed off over a million civilian Koreans. Donald Bode, a chemical officer for the U.S. Eighth Army, was quoted as saying that on an average good day, our pilots, quote, dropped 70,000 gallons of napalm, 45,000 from the U.S. Air Force, 10,000 to 20,000 by the Navy, and 4,000 to 5,000 by the Marines, who nicknamed the burning jellied gasoline cooking oil. In his 2013 book, Napalm, author Robert Neer noted that a total of 32,357 tons of napalm were used on Korea, about double that dropped on Japan in 1945. Moreover, more bombs were dropped on Korea than in the whole of the Pacific Theater during World War II, 635,000 tons as opposed to 503,000 tons. According to Robert Neer, Pyongyang, a city of half a million people before 1950, was said to have only two buildings left intact. This is still living memory in North Korea, he wrote, as was the sadism on the part of those conducting that war from Washington. If we keep on tearing the place apart, we can make it most unpopular affair for the North Koreans. Defense Secretary Robert Lovett said after the napalm and aerial bombing campaigns of 1950 and 1951. That's according to Bruce Cummings, a University of Chicago professor who's written several books on North Korea. We ought to go right ahead, Uh, Lovett reportedly said. Dean Rusk, who would go on to become Secretary of State, recalled that the U.S. bombed, quote, everything that moved in North Korea, every brick standing on top of another, end quote. After running low on urban targets in the latter stages of the war, U.S. bombers destroyed hydroelectric and irrigation dams, flooding farmland, and destroying crops. That was according to former Washington Post correspondent Blaine Hardin. It finally came to a point where Air Force commanders complained that they'd run out of targets. Charles K. Armstrong, a professor of Korean history at Columbia, would write that, quote, "...the physical destruction and loss in life of both sides was almost beyond comprehension, but the North suffered the greater damage due to American saturation bombing and the scorched earth policy of the retreating UN forces." Then there's a testimony of General Douglas MacArthur, the story general from the Pacific Theater in World War II who publicly butted heads with President Harry Truman over how the war in Korea was being conducted and ended up being relieved of his command on April 11, 1951. MacArthur had wanted to take the war across the Yalu River into China after its troops had entered the war on North Korea's behalf, and Truman, intent on keeping the war confined to the Korean Peninsula, fired him. The general subsequently testified at joint hearings before the Senate's Committee on Armed Services and Committee on Foreign Relations about his dismissal, but what he had to say about the conduct of the war has been largely excluded from the history books. Here's what he said. I shrink. I shrink with a horror that I could not express in words at this continuous slaughter of men in Korea, he told the members of Congress. The war in Korea has already almost destroyed that nation of 20 million people. And he said that at a time when the war was not yet even a year old. I have never seen such devastation, he went on. I have seen, I guess, as much blood and disaster as any living man and just curdled my stomach the last time I was there. After I looked at the wreckage and those thousands of women and children and everything, I vomited. If you go on indefinitely, you are perpetuating a slaughter such as I have never heard of in the history of mankind." Quote. The United States has never been able to truly come to terms with that havoc, it wrote, during that conflict, so it has chosen to forget it, an option that was never open to North Korea. Americans know the Korean War is a forgotten war, wrote Bruce Cummings, which is another way of saying that generally they do not know it. A war that killed upwards of 4 million people, 35,000 of them Americans, he notes is remembered mainly as an odd conflict sandwiched between the good war, World War II, and the bad war, Vietnam. End quote. Nor did Washington ever consider paying reparations for the death and destruction its intervention had caused the Koreans nor is the legality of that intervention questioned. The same would be true of our war in in Vietnam that began a decade later and extended to Laos. None of those countries had ever attacked or threatened us until the recent statement by North Korean Premier Kim Jong-un following the latest round of UN sanctions on Pyongyang pushed by Washington. It's well to recall that serious questions remain about which side initiated the war in 1950. Listeners to my March 22nd program heard me quote from a pamphlet entitled Korea, The Lie That Led to War by Sir John Pratt, who worked for the British Foreign Service for 13 years, was an adviser on Far Eastern affairs in the Foreign Office, and served for two years as head of the Far Eastern section of Britain's Ministry of Information. At dawn... On Sunday, June 25, 1950, wrote Pratt, South Korean President Syngman Rhee launched a sudden attack which took the North Koreans by surprise. His forces crossed the 38th parallel at several places and captured Haiju, some miles to the north on the road to Pyongyang. The North Koreans staged a counteroffensive and the South Koreans threw down their arms and fled. The North Koreans then drove on across the parallel and staged a full-scale invasion of South Korea. For nearly a year, wrote Pratt, Both North and South Koreans had been expecting civil war to break out, and each side was confident of victory. The American military advisory group he went on, who had created the South Korean army, were convinced that one South Korean division could defeat three North Korean divisions, and Singman Rhee had often boasted that if they were allowed to start, the, his forces could capture Pyongyang, the northern capital, in three days. These were ludicrous miscalculations, wrote Pratt. One of the most telling pieces of evidence that Pratt presents was a story told by the internationally known historian and journalist John Gunther, who was in Tokyo planning to write a biography of MacArthur. On the morning of June 25th, he was dining with two officers from the U.S. occupation forces that were running Japan in the post-war period. One was called away from the table by an urgent phone message. When he returned, he passed on to his fellow officer and Gunther what the call had been about. Quote, the South has just invaded the North, End quote. Well, that was all from a report published a year after the war began by longtime British Foreign Service official Sir John Pratt, titled Korea, The Lie That Led to War, which you can find online. Christine Ahn is a founder and international coordinator of Women Cross DMZ, a global movement of women mobilizing for peace in Korea. She's also co-founder of the Korea Policy Institute and Korea Peace Network, has addressed the UN, Congress, the National Human Rights Commission in South Korea, and has written articles for many journals, been interviewed widely on major media. And we reached her this morning in Hawaii. Christine on welcome to Takes on the World.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: It's a great pleasure. I have heard you interviewed elsewhere, and I really wanted to get you here, and so it has happened at a very propitious <laughs> time. Uh, last week, Steve Bannon made a remarkable statement in an interview with Robert Kuttner, the American prospect, in which he said that there was no military solution to the U.S.-North Korea standoff and suggested the best solution would be for the 30,000 U.S. troops to be withdrawn in exchange for a verifiable freeze in North Korea's nuclear weapons program. That apparently was what led him to be fired. This seems such a reasonable (laughs) suggestion, coming from someone who I don't consider to be very reasonable. But what was your take on that?
3: It was really um, unbelievable (laughs) to read that that there was somebody who wielded so much influence in the White House to to even have those ideas was incredible. And the main takeaway from that interview was about the economic war against China. And that to me has always aligned with um, the way that I view the U.S. uh, approach to North Korea is the real target is China and North Korea's a boogeyman that justifies further intensifying uh, military operations, more bases, more missile defense systems. The latest one is the THAAD missile defense system deployed in South Korea. That has nothing to do with stopping a North Korean missile from striking South Korea. It has everything to do with preventing a North Korean missile from striking U.S. territories or eventually the U.S. mainland. While... Uh, That would be a great thing for the U.S. to uh, eventually leave the Korean Peninsula. There have been other um, demands that the North Koreans have made, namely that they need a peace settlement because the Korean War never officially ended. There has always just been a ceasefire that was signed in 1953 that halted the war but has basically maintained a state of war on the Korean Peninsula for 70 years. And they want normalized relations because... They are under the heaviest sanctions of any country in the world, um, which was kind of uh, offset a bit during the Cold War when North Korea had active trading in the socialist trading bloc. But once the Soviet Union collapsed, it, um, that trading bloc no longer existed, and so the U.S., as the as the world superpower, really put its choke on North Korea. And then, fortunately, with the rise of China's economy, they've been able to um, stabilize. But still, that country is nowhere um, that it can be. I mean, given that if you look at the trajectory of North and South Korea's economic development following the war, which both sides, but North Korea was far worse, worse devastated. I mean, 80% of North Korean cities were completely bombed to death by under the U.S. scorched earth campaign.
2: Yesterday's New York Times had an article uh, from Seoul by um, a man uh, Cho Seong-hoon in which he was talking about the opinions of people in South Korea and he said ask people in the south whether the north will ever ban its arsenal and more often than not the answer is would you if you were North Korean <laughs> <laughs> I
3: mean you bring up Cho Seong-hoon who is the New York Times reporter and before he joined the New York Times, he was with the Associated Press. And he, along with two other journalists, Charles Hanley and Martha Mendoza, won the Pulitzer Prize at the AP for their groundbreaking journalism on um, No Gun It was a bridge it was on the southern side, and these civilians went to No Gun um, dressed in white as civilians so that they weren't um, caught in the crossfire of U.S. bombs. But later turned out that these civilians were massacred, and these three AP reporters, which includes Che Tang hoon who now is at the Times, uh, interviewed a lot of the U.S. soldiers that were in charge of that unit for shooting the civilians in Ngoan-ri um, and followed basically the chain of command. And they got to the very top, and there was a missing memo <laughs> from the archives that showed deliberate message, which was doesn't matter whether it's just they're civilians or not. They could be communists, um, so just kill them all. That was basically the message. And that period, from during the Korean War and then afterwards, because in the South, very similar to what we see in Iraq or Afghanistan, the U.S. appointed a puppet, President Lee Singman, who hadn't lived on the Korean Peninsula for decades, uh, who was married to, like, a Norwegian woman, and so they came to kind of lead the country. There was a, a a coup, a democratic overthrow, and for a little bit there was democratic rule. And then the dictator, Park Jong-hee, who had been trained by the Japanese during the colonial period, took over in a coup and... Korea remained, South Korea remained under dictatorship for 20 years. That happened to be the father of the former president, Park Geun-hye, who recently was impeached um, by candlelight revolution of the Korean people. And it's just, I think, so much of the, um, the inability to also forget the Korean War has so much to do with South Korea being also under dictatorship. And uh, repressing some of the atrocious uh, massacres and the kind of wholesale killing of leftists and um, people that weren't even communists. I mean, you look at a situation like Jeju Island, where in 1948, the people rose up because they didn't want to have separate elections. And the U.S. military basically waged uh, a massacre on that island. It's an island off the coast of Korea, And almost 50% of the people of that island were, were massacred by a scorched earth and also, like, these um, youth gangs going in to, to kill them. And so much of this is because there has been repression. And I think that in the period of the 2000s, when Kim dae Jong, who was the sunshine policy president who came into power and was truly the first democratically elected president, he began a process of reconciliation, not only with North Korea, but within South Korea, to start to um, release some of those stories. And so I guess back to the thing about the, the Forgotten War, it has a lot to do with America's amnesia and wanting to forget the fact that we lost such a huge war. There was um, an impact. The U.S., it was the first war that the U.S. did not win. We were obviously victors in World War II and starting with the Korean War began the US subsequent failures in military interventions so i think that's part of it and i think it also has to do with south korea being under successive dictatorships and because of the dictatorships close alliance with the united states censoring some of that brutal traumatic history
2: I know one other thing that i mentioned in, in my uh, introductory remarks before i call you was I cited an article by a British former British Foreign Service official, John Pratt, uh, about the origins of the war in which he cited information that, in fact, it was the South that had launched the war and the North had retaliated. Um, do people in North Korea believe that it was the South that started the war? Yes,
3: they do. Yeah. And even um, I have Stone who we know is an incredible journalist, um, and he wrote a book called The Hidden History of the Korean War that he could not get published anywhere in the United States and even in the U.K. And fortunately, because the monthly review, Press had just opened up, that was their first book they published. The level of censorship was so thick that even that perspective could not even be introduced into U.S. media into U.S. public consciousness. We can get stuck on this forever, and obviously knowing the truth is important, but it has obviously still not served to end this ongoing conflict. And what we try to do at Women Cross DMZ is to try to move the conversation forward and, um, and talk about other aspects of this conflict besides the potential threat of nuclear war that would kill us all, but what about the families? That remain divided? What about the, the cost of um, repression on both sides of the DMZ? What are the huge costs that we aren't really acknowledging when we look at uh, the maintaining the state of war? So, that's why we've been pushing for um, a peace treaty. We have a huge responsibility to help end this war. The United States divided the Korean Peninsula along with the Soviet Union basically tore a page out of the National Geographic and drew a line across the 38th parallel. We have to understand that history to understand why North Korea feels the need to pursue its nuclear weapons. They look at what's happened in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, countries that had and did not have weapons of mass destruction, and they have no choice but to continue to pursue nuclear weapons program.
0: That was Christine On founder and executive director of Women Cross DMZ, a global movement of women mobilizing to end the Korean War. Christine is also the coordinator of the campaign Korea Peace Now. She was born in South Korea and has participated in and led several peace and solidarity trips to South and North Korea, This program was recorded in August 2017. Now, six years later, Christine Ahn is a guest on the April 28 edition of Democracy Now.
4: The announcement that the US would send nuclear-armed submarines to South Korea is a very provocative and dangerous move. It's the first time that US nuclear weapons have been on or around the Korean Peninsula in 40 years. In fact, most Americans have no idea that the nuclear crisis actually began with the US bringing nuclear weapons in South Korea from 1956, three years after the signing of the ceasefire, um, and had them there up until George Bush Sr. So that is not only a provocative act directed at North Korea, but also at China. And this is actually throwing fuel into a fire that has been increasingly dangerous. There have been massive military exercises between the US and South Korea spring all last year. Uh, Last year, I think North Korea conducted 90 missile tests and the situation is just getting even more dangerous. There is a a three-star general, Dan Leaf, who says of all the conflicts currently taking place right now, whether it's between U.S. Uh, and China over Taiwan or the Russia-Ukraine war, that the Korean Peninsula is perhaps the one that may be the closest to a nuclear war. And the fact that the U.S. will be sending U.S. nuclear submarines to the Korean Peninsula and for Biden to make such a um, a statement uh, that is akin to Trump's fire and fury era where he threatened to totally destroy North Korea. This is a wake up call, I think, for the American people and obviously for South Koreans who feel that um, Yoon is basically drawing um, the Korean Peninsula on the front line of the US war against China. This is actually the 70th anniversary of the ceasefire this July 27th. marks. 70 years that the U.S. commander, the North Korean commander, and the Chinese uh, representative from the Voluntary People's Army signed the armistice agreement where they committed to halting the war, but they never actually followed up with their commitment, which was to return within 90 days to negotiate a peace settlement. So what we're facing is this continual Um, militarization. South Korea now is the sixth largest military spender in the world. The U.S. we know is the world's largest. And it is an unsustainable uh, crisis. July 27th marks the 70th anniversary of the armistice. And we are saying it's time to end this war. Um, This war that inaugurated the military-industrial complex for the United States. It set forth the U.S. to become the world's police. And it has been the war that has maintained this constant threat on the Korean Peninsula.
0: That was Christine On, a guest on Democracy Now! on April 28, 2023. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website. T-U-C Radio.org My name is Mariah Gleuden. Thank you for listening.